Open our lips, O God, that our mouths might proclaim your praise. Amen. I'm thinking that over the years, um, the book of Job and Job himself may be my most trusted friend in the scriptures. It's certainly one of the most honest books. It's an unapologetic book. It's a book of someone who is incredibly faithful. And it's a book, you may recall, that comes in a chapter of Israel's history where they're finally giving up that notion that if we're good, God will bless us. And if stuff is going bad, it must be because we're doing bad. And as I often like to say very tongue-in-cheek, I'm so glad we too have left behind that theology. Right? Because during the book, you may remember the story, Job begins, and at this time, it's a timepiece. Job has many wives, he has many children and grandchildren, and more flocks than can be counted. But then the bottom falls out, and everyone dies. All his family. All the livestock. And he's left with nothing but sores on his skin, and three very unhelpful friends who keep trying to help him figure out what's going wrong, because certainly, Job, you've done something because God wouldn't have this happen to you. I mean, come on. I mean, let's be honest, right? And over time, Job finally says to them, what could I have done to deserve this? And it's Israel saying, you know, when bad things happen to us as a community or as a nation, individually, it's not that kind of tit for tat. Be good, I'll be good to you. Bad, and I'll be bad. I mean, would you even hang out with a friend who lived that way with you? Why would we think we would tolerate a God who lives that way? And so what we have today is about midway through the story where Job is incredibly honest. And Job says to the friends, just stop. And he starts to let out his lament. And he starts to ask, where is God? I look to the right, I look to the left, Well, let me just read a bit of it. Today also my complaint is bitter. The Holy One's hand is heavy despite my groaning. Oh, that I knew where I might find the Holy One, that I might come to Yahweh's dwelling. I would lay my case before him and fill my mouth with arguments, and I would learn what the Holy One would answer me and understand what would be said to me. Would Yahweh contend with me in the greatness of his power? No. But the Holy One would give heed to me. That's why Job is so beautiful. Job is letting out the lament, and Job is speaking about his own sense of who God is. Like all the prophets, like the psalmist today, why have you forsaken me? The psalmist who says, our ancestors trusted in you and they found you faithful. I'm trusting in you and you're making me a laughing stock, but I will keep talking with you. Which is the beauty of Job and the psalmist and the prophets. Because they don't even know where God is. They're looking at the news about him. They're looking at their own lives and they're saying, like perhaps some of you at times, where in the heck are you? But rather than be castigated, towards the end of the book, God even says to Job's friends, you all need to be quiet and listen to Job because Job's prayers are righteous. Because Job understands that I am about conversation. 
that while Job is wondering where the heck God is, Job is still leaning into God and expecting that God will indeed hear him. High honor. Job, who, as we quote in our burial offices, says, I know that my Redeemer lives, and that at the last, the Holy One will raise me up, and in my body, I will see God. We hear a lot of lament these days in our nation and culture, our city. And as always, we like to remind that this period of time, uh, I don't know that it's any different than any other period of time, find me a decade or a century where the dignity of every human being was held up. And then we can say our time is, gosh shucks. And there is a whole lot of lament going on. And some of it's helpful and some of it less so. Some lament seems to open us up and other lament that's being thrown around seems to want to make us shut down. And I think a lot of this has to do, as you've heard us say before, we don't get much training in lament, not even in the church. And that is to our dis-ease. We don't read Job a lot because laments aren't neat and tidy. You know, we can't just say, bless their heart. <laughs> But that's partly why they're beautiful. Because they are not neat and tidy. They don't just kind of pat you on the back and patronize you. And they're beautiful because they are not violent. Biblical laments. The biblical laments start with God. And there's a reason for that. Because what the prophets understand is that where we need to start with our lament with our anger, with our rage, with our fear, is with God. That's where they start. Not so that God can somehow kind of soften it or make you be nice about it or pleasant about it. Not that God is some kind of like cosmic fabric softener that will just kind of make it a little softer around the edges, right? Not in the least. We bring our lament like the prophets first to God because then we have to submit our rage and our anger and our fear to the full humanity of God. We bring it into a humanizing space. And so that raises the question for me, how do we personally, how do we as a faith community Lament and rage without being violent. Some words from Eugene Peterson. It's easy to be honest before God with our alleluias, somewhat more difficult with our hurts. Nearly impossible to be honest before God in the dark emotions of our hates. I think people need to be given permission to do so to find a language of hate and disappointment and retaliation and get that out. People who repress these emotions often get sick and depressed. Learning how to express our fears and our discomforts and our hate 
It's often very freeing. If you can bring that before God, it's less dangerous as something that's in the world. We don't bring our rage and anger and fear to God to be cleansed of it. We bring it to God to humanize it and bring it into the full humanity of God. It's, it's like Jesus in the garden when they come to arrest him. And Peter pulls out the sword because, okay, if, if, if this is going to, well, then it's on, it's on. Come on, come on, let's do it. You're going to bring your stuff. Look who we got. We got the Son of God with us, man. Come on. And Jesus does several things that are pretty amazing because he has brought his own rage through his years to God, his own fears to God. And so he says a couple things. First, he says, stop with the sword. Yes, don't you know, I could just call right now 10,000 angels and we could smote this place in 12 seconds, maybe five and a half. I mean, have you ever, you have to raise your hands right now, but like the psalmist, have you ever prayed to God and said, would you please just smote them? <laughs> okay, right? If you haven't prayed that one, come talk to me. I need to figure out what's going on in your life. I'm not, I had to leave that alone, but you know? And Jesus in that moment saying, don't you know we could smote them so easily? But we're not going to today. But he doesn't just stop there and say, bless their hearts. They just don't know what they're doing. He gets very rabbinic and very clear. And he says, excuse me, I'm a couple of, just a couple of questions I need to ask you. Have I not for, for like years been out in the public just about every day? I'm wondering why you're coming by darkness of night. Can you help me with that? I'm wondering, what is it that I'm doing that is not grounded in the Scriptures and in our understanding of Yahweh? Can you, can you help me with that? Because Jesus has brought his own rage, because he himself has prayed Psalm 22 earlier that evening, why have you forsaken me, but I'm going to keep leaning into you, then, when they come with the swords, he has brought it to a humanizing place where he puts the ear back on the slave and says, this isn't it. We will name and continue to name what's going on in the culture, but we will never, ever succumb to the myth of redemptive violence. The danger of rage and fear is that if we don't bring it into sacred spaces, then we either bring it inward and we go to depression. What can I do? I'll just stay home. Or we bring it outward unrefined and we foist our violence on others. And we need the lessons and we need the rituals of lament if we're going to live in this or any time because we need the spaces that allow and can hold our rage without allowing us to succumb to our basest instincts. The psalmist says, grind their children up, but the psalmist says it in the community, so they go, brother, let's breathe today. Bring it to this space. Start here. This true lament is about naming it's honest without hedging, 
and it holds people to account without seeking vengeance. So some other reasons why I think it's helpful to bring our rage here to one another and to God in these spaces. I have to bring myself, not just as a community, before the full humanity of God. And I have to bring myself before your full humanity. And I have to ask myself questions like, what part of my rage is just fueled by my fear, really? What part of my fear and rage right now is being fueled by some prior trauma that's always going to be with me, but I might not be recognizing or naming right now? What part of my lament and rage is more about wishing for vengeance than for the life of the others? And what part of my rage might be some cover for what I really know is my own complicitness in the stuff, but if I act really rageful, you'll think I'm pure and holy and righteous, and I don't have to look at my own complicitness. That's so much easier. And sisters and brothers, if I'm going to ask those questions, I need you. And if you're going to ask those questions, you need me. And if we are going to ask those questions, we need God. That's why we bring our rage, our fear, our laments to God and to the faith community. To submit them to the full humanity of God and one another so that we can see as clearly as possible and speak and act as cleanly as we know how. It's free from festering our violence onto others. How can a community lament and rage without being violent? Now, somewhere in this point, you might be wondering, so Todd, what does that have to do with Pledge Sunday? Yeah, no, I want to see this segue, man. It is an easy segue. Because pledging is about so much more than just keeping the lights on. It is about that, thank you. But pledging is about us figuring out how to live like Job. Pledging is about saying, I have all this in me, you have all this in me, and we are bringing it to the altar because it's the only place we keep finding life. And I have to open myself up to you and you have to open yourself up to me, and we have to open ourselves up to God if we're going to bring any life to this world that is starving for it, that is thirsting for it, and that is looking for communities who don't succumb to redemptive violence. If I'm going to find the courage, the hope, the care, the accountability it takes to live this way, man, I need you, and you need me. And we need God. And that's what our pledges are about, saying we're all in. We're here. And we're bringing it all. I need the beauty of your hope. I need the beauty of your incompleteness. Because your incompleteness saves me from the tyranny of pretended perfection. That's why we come to bring ourselves, our souls, and bodies to each other and to God, submitting all of ourselves, pledging all of ourselves to each other's humanity and to God's. 
That's why I find Job to be such a good friend. Job has lost the willingness to play games. When I listen to the the reflections the last few weeks, as I listen to you in conversations, in forums, I realize you too have lost the taste for playing games. That you have chosen to be all in and you expect God to do the same. And it's because of that that we, like Job, can say, I know that my Redeemer lives. And we will, by living this way, see God face to face.